Welcome back to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas. We are your hosts, Karen and Kathy. Today, we formally start off the discussion of the story of Minglan with episode one. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Chasing Dramas, or else email us at Karen and Kathy. That's Kathy with a C at chasingdramas.com with any comments or feedback on what we've discussed today. We are very excited to start Zhifo, Zhifo, Ying Shi Lu Fei Hong Shou, or the story of Ming Lan. Please listen to the intro to the drama episode for this drama to get some background about the show, history, and the cast. The drama is available on YouTube with English subtitles, at least in North America or the US, so please follow along with us. We are paying attention to the English translations that YouTube provides, but we will provide our own translations for some of the title names and phrases if we feel that they fit better with uh, what we're trying to say or with history. This podcast is in English but with proper names and historical phrases said in Mandarin Chinese. Additionally, please note that we are not historians or academics. We are purely fans of Chinese history and these dramas. Granted, we've done research for this podcast, but urge listeners to continue to conduct your own research as well. The sources for this podcast include the original book that this drama was based on, various pages on the internet, and physical books on the Song Dynasty history that we have consumed. Typically for the show, we will do a recap of the episode and then discuss our analysis and history. However, since today is the first episode, we will spend more time introducing the characters and providing some background to the story and setting. We will also be adding a section where we discuss differences to the book or provide more background from the book if we think that it is helpful for our analysis. The story of Minglan is set during the Northern Song time period, around 1050 AD, during the reign of Emperor Zhao Zhen, or his temple name of Song Renzong. Most historians will refer to the emperors by their temple name for this dynasty. So we will be referring to this emperor as Song Renzong, or just refer to him as Guanjia, which is different from other dynasties. Our drama, though, revolves around Sheng Minglan, the sixth daughter of the Sheng family. This drama is very much about life, struggles, politics, and intrigue of family life in a feudalistic society. This show gives us a sneak peek into the lives of men and women, their strict rules, and of course, their confines. China, throughout its history, has been a patriarchal society. Polygamy was widely accepted, and roles of women were always subservient to men. The previous drama that we discussed Empresses in the Palace was all about the concubines and consorts that an emperor had. In Empresses in the Palace, though, as concubines of the emperor, these women came from powerful families and had a certain amount of wealth and status. Or most of them did. In this drama, the story of Minglan, 
we will explore the status of women or lack thereof and the strict confines with which they can operate. That is not to say that the focus will be all on women. There is a huge cast of male characters too, and we will see how both men and women try to find their way through this feudalistic society. Before we actually get started with discussing and recapping the episode, let's explain some of the key players. Otherwise, this drama can get really confusing. On one hand, I think it's great that the drama just throws you off the deep end and expects you to understand what's going on. On the other hand, it's difficult to follow without repeated viewings or a good knowledge of Chinese history. I know I've certainly rewatched the first couple of episodes several times in order to actually understand what's going on, and I'm constantly learning new things. The drama starts with the Sheng family, currently in Yangzhou. The head of the family is named Sheng Hong, whom we'll call either Master or Magistrate Sheng, or else in Chinese, Sheng Daren. His wife is named Wang Ruofu. In Chinese, this is Wang Danyangzi, or in English, Madame Wang. There are also two concubines. The first is Lin Qingshuang, or Mistress Lin, or in Chinese, Lin Xiangyang, played by the amazing Gao Lu. I want to fangirl a little bit here about Gao Lu. We've been a fan of hers for years, and she normally plays the moral, righteous, and intelligent woman, generally serene and very kind. So it's a fun ride to see her turn into a despicable and manipulative concubine in this drama. The other concubine is concubine Wei, or Wei Xiangyang. She doesn't have a maiden name. Now, on YouTube, the translations of these women are Big Madam for the wife and Little Madam for the concubines. That's the literal translation, which we personally don't know if we like. So what we'll do is we'll call the main wife Madam and the concubines the mistresses. For the daughters, we'll call them either Miss or else Lady. Again, we are not Historians, <laughs> we are not academics, but this is what we feel is more accurate. In this drama, there are six children in the family. The birth order is as such. The oldest daughter, Hua Lan. The second son, Chang Bai. The third son, Chang Feng. The fourth daughter, Mo Lan. The fifth daughter, Ru Lan. And lastly, the sixth daughter, Ming Lan. In this society, which is different from the last drama, where the sons ranked separately from the daughters, the children are ordered simply by birth. The main wife, Madame Wang or Wang Danyangzi, has three children. The first daughter, Hua Lan, who is ranked first. The eldest son, Chang Bai, who is ranked second. And a third daughter, Ru Lan, who is ranked fifth. Mistress Lin, or Lin Xiangyang, has two children. The second son, Chang Feng, or he is ranked third. And the second eldest daughter, who is ranked fourth, Mo Lan. So Mo Lan is older than Ru Lan, which is why Mo Lan is ranked fourth and Ru Lan is ranked fifth. Mistress Wei, or Wei Xiangyang, has one daughter the sixth daughter, and her main character, Ming Lan. In total, there are two boys and four girls. 
All of the girls are named with lan, which means orchids, while the boys are named with chang, which means longevity. The naming conventions we will talk about more in depth in future episodes. The drama cuts out a lot of characters from the book. The head of the household, or the father, had plenty more concubines and another son. In this episode, Hualan, the eldest, is of marriageable age, and there's a lot of chaos that stems from today due to her betrothal. The youngest, Minglan, right now is around six, so there is a pretty big age gap. The most revered person of the household is the grandmother, Grandma Sheng. Technically, we should call her Madam Sheng, but Karen wants to call her Grandma Sheng because we like her. Crucial to this drama and a key piece of information we all have to remember is that she was the main wife of the head of the household to the Sheng family before this current master. Unfortunately, her son died, and so she actually raised a concubine son to become the head of the family. Therefore, Sheng Hong, or the father of these children and the master of the household right now, has no blood relation to Grandma Sheng. Now that we have introduced kind of the family dynamics, we can get started with the recap of episode one. There's certainly a lot to digest, so we recommend either re-listening to the earlier sections or else just follow along for the ride. Things will certainly become more clear as we continue. The first scene of this drama provides us with a glimpse of the family fights that happen between the maids of the women who are in favor versus those who are not. We've seen plenty of this in the last drama we've discussed on this podcast, Empresses in the Palace, Jin Huan Zhuan, so we're familiar with how it goes. The more in favor you are, the more materials you receive. The less in favor you are, unless you have a lot of money and can bribe your way around, you are left to the mercy of servants who can make your life hell. We open the episode with a cute little girl crying because she wasn't given any charcoal for her mistress to heat up the rooms for winter. An older maid, Xiao Die, hears this and immediately storms over to the kitchen to gather supplies. She is haughtily greeted by Miss Gan, who doesn't comply and refuses to give her the coal. Another maid, Miss Zhou, who seems kind, intervenes and tries to tell Xiao Die to stop making this ruckus. Oh, unfortunately, Miss Zhou is an absolute two-faced snake, so keep this in mind for the rest of the drama. However, since today is the engagement party of Lady Hualan, the servants shouldn't be causing a commotion. But Xiao Die, the maid, argues that her mistress is pregnant and needs supplies. She threatens to bring this up with the madam of the family. Miss Zhou finally agrees and tells Miss Gan to fetch charcoal from under the stove. Miss Gan ponders this for a moment, lights up, and hurriedly agrees. The maid, Xiao Die, only takes her allocated allotment of coal and hurries out. She misses the smirk, though, on Miss Zhou's face. Once this conflict has been established, 
The other main drama of the episode is introduced in the form of an argument between Madame Wang and Master Sheng, the main husband and wife of the household. On YouTube, the translation for his title is Magistrate Sheng, but he is often referred to as Lord. That is unfortunately not accurate since he is not titled to be a noble. He is only a scholarly civil servant with a small role in court. He therefore should not be referred to as his lordship. In the main bedroom, the madam of the house or the primary wife, Wang Danyangzi, is throwing a hissy fit. She's angry at her future in-laws, the Yuan family. Why? Well, because today is the betrothal gift ceremony, or na zheng, for her firstborn daughter, Lady Hua Lan. We'll talk about this ceremony at the end of the episode. The Yuan family is currently in the capital city of Dongjing, or Kaifeng. But they send only the firstborn son, or the elder brother of the groom, to send the betrothal gift, or pinli. This is a huge slap in the face. It is customary for either the in-laws themselves to bring the bridal price or betrothal gift or a clan elder. Madame Wang or Wang Danyangzi is furious at this affront. She's worried that her precious daughter will be treated poorly at her future husband's house, which, to be fair, is an actual worry. Wang Danyangzi is going to be the life of the show because she is quite hilarious. Um, and uh, when the show first aired, she was the subject of many memes. She is also not very intelligent and generally becomes upset at the smallest things. She'd get eaten alive if she were in the palace with Jin Huan. The man of the house, Sheng Hong, is busy trying to mollify his wife. How can he not dote on his oldest daughter? He found his daughter a great marriage. He himself is currently only a magistrate, but his daughter is marrying into the family of an earl, or a boho. The second son of the main wife, too. That is quite an honor. No matter what, she won't have to worry about luxury and comfort and that she's definitely marrying up. Wang Danyangzi finally relents and allows the groom's party to arrive for the celebrations. So here's conflict number two. The Yuan family and Sheng family are to marry. The Yuan family is more powerful and wealthy, being nobility. However, they've already shown that they are rather disrespectful. This will come into play later. And at last, we get our first glimpse of our main character, the young Minglan, and her impoverished living conditions as a daughter of an unfavored concubine. She's only five or six at this point. The charcoal that the maid Xiaodie procured earlier is unfortunately not suitable for use in rooms. The smoke is too strong. Remember when Xiaodie procured the charcoal? Miss Zhou explicitly said, Give her charcoal from beneath the stove. And Miss Gun did just that. The coal from the stove is too smoky for use in rooms. Poor Mistress Wei and her family, including Minglan, still can't use the coal to keep warm. And uh, this again shows that uh, Xiaodie was a little bit too innocent when 
dealing with the likes of Miss Joe and Miss Gunn. Mistress Wei, who is pregnant, is shown to be kind and understanding, but also poor. She tries to push a silver bracelet to Xiaodie to try to pawn for money to turn into coal. This is the last of her dowry. Minglan, seeing this, doesn't want her mother to pawn off the bracelet. Her mother kindly urges Minglan to spend time with Grandma Sheng. There is an opportunity to stay by Grandma Sheng's side, which will mean better educational opportunities for Minglan. Without her mother's knowledge, Minglan comes up with the idea that they exchange the unusable coal for some usable coal. Even if it's not a lot, it is still something to use. From this scene, we see that Minglan is intelligent and caring. She loves her mother deeply, but they are in a destitute situation. Her father does not know that they are not being given their monthly allowance of materials, and he does not care enough to know which tells us that Wei Xiaoyang or Mistress Wei is not favored. For those of you who watched Mi Yue Zhuan or The Legend of Mi Yue, the young actress for Ming Lan is the same as baby Mi Yue. I remember when that show came out, everyone was so in love with baby Mi Yue because she was adorable. In this drama, young Ming Lan shows her pretty good acting chops, I must say. Yes, she can cry beautiful tears on sight, and it's very touching. While Minglan and her family and her mother are struggling to get coal, the Yuan family is arriving with the betrothal gift for the eldest daughter, Hua Lan. We researched this, and the translation should be bridal price, but Kathy was like, I think that's too barbaric. So this time we'll go with the YouTube translation, the betrothal gift. We'll explain this at the end of the episode. It's quite an impressive scene. There is a huge procession of servants carrying a wide array of gifts, and most prominently featured are a pair of geese, or yen. This emphasizes to us that the Yuan family is indeed very wealthy. The Sheng family is lined up in their main entrance room to greet the procession. All of the children and Master Sheng and Madame Wang are ready to greet the procession. Notice how all three young girls, so the three youngest daughters, are lined up with Minglan at the end, and she is also the only one without ornaments in her hair. As the daughter of an unfavored concubine, she doesn't have anything to wear for an event like this. This scene I really like because it shows us a glimpse of what this type of ceremony actually might have been like during this time period. There's a servant that runs up requesting the acceptance of the betrothal gift, and after some hesitation where the master looks at his wife to ensure that she will actually agree, the two announce that they agree to the marriage. The Yuan family, led by the oldest son and his wife, are allowed in, and there's a joyous celebration at the Sheng household. Everyone is having a great time, and we want to clarify that this isn't even the actual wedding, just the acceptance of the betrothal gift, which means the engagement is ready, like that the engagement happened. There's food on tables, games, and relatives are arriving for a fun time together. 
The excitement lasts for like 30 seconds before a potential scandal happens. In this society, and honestly in general, a lot of Chinese society, lian mian, or your reputation or prestige, is absolutely crucial. The third son, Changfeng, is playing what translates to pitch pot or arrow toss with his sister's betrothal gifts as a bet. The literal translation of tohu is pitch pot, and uh, we'll use either pitch pot or arrow toss to discuss this event. Particularly, what is being gambled is the pinyan, or the betrothal geese. Changfeng is playing against a boy who tagged along for the procession and has been losing against this boy. He's about to lose all of his big sister's uh, betrothal gifts. While Changfeng is just a child, losing the betrothal gift is a big stain on the Sheng family reputation. We'll explain later this episode, but geese are very important betrothal gifts, and losing them is not good. As the child is losing the game, many parties are already freaking out about what to do. Madame Wang, or Wang Da Niangzi, is huffing her way over to the scene. Magistrate Sheng is already having a tense conversation with the Yuan family representative. The Yuan family's oldest son and his wife. Master Sheng thinks the Yuan family should ask the winning child to call off the bet, while the Yuan family doesn't think it's their job. The Yuan family ultimately refuses to do anything to appease this humiliating situation, and Master Sheng storms away from the conversation. In the end, the embarrassing scene occurs because the third son, Changfeng, got drunk and was goaded into this bet. He's still young, probably in his early teens, but still, this is a bad reflection of him, his mother, and the whole family. His mother, like we said before, is Mistress Lin, a concubine. To the outside world, however, it's not his birth mother who will be ridiculed, but Madame Wang, the woman of the household. His mother, Mistress Lin, is a cunning woman and recognizes that this does not look good for anyone. She actually gets a slap to the face by Madame Wang because of her son's behavior, and she immediately starts scheming on how to save him by punishing him severely. Honestly, if I was Madame Wang, I would probably be just as furious. Some other woman's son is betting and gambling away my daughter's betrothal gift? What the heck? Back to where this game or bet is happening, Wang Danyangzi catches up to her husband, who is sneakily trying to watch the game's progression. I find this scene so hilarious because she's so angry and he's also freaking out about what to do. They're both trying to save face. The two are, of course, embarrassed and head over to Changfeng, who's steadily losing. Sheng Hong, the master of the house, whispers in his son's ear that if he loses, he'll beat him to death. The poor kid freaks out and backs away. Master Sheng takes this opportunity to try to corral everyone back to the banquet and move their attention away from this bet, again hoping to save face. 
At this exact moment, our main character Sheng Minglan steps in. The little girl picks up a fallen arrow and successfully tosses it into the pot. Everyone is stunned. Her opponent, a young boy in blue, says that if he competes with this little girl, it won't be fair. He's willing to back away from the game and call off the bet. Technically, this is the result that everyone wants, or at least the Sheng family wants. But Minglan is adamant in wanting to compete. She acknowledges that her older brother Changfeng lost the previous rounds, but she is willing to bet that back. Well, as the main character, she will win. Minglan tosses the arrows, and each one that she tosses, she's able to get in. Her opponent ups the ante and tosses two arrows at the same time. It looks like she might lose, but in the end, she tosses a game-winning arrow. Without a doubt, she won this round. The Sheng family is ecstatic at this result. Before the Yuan family can ask for another round, a strong wind blows through, forcing everyone to move indoors for food. This effectively ends the rambunctious interlude to what originally was supposed to be a very fun day. And notice when the guests head back for the banquet, the men and women head off to separate areas of the house. Again, very strict. Uh, stratification of where men and women can actually congregate. As everyone goes inside, the young boy who was competing against the Sheng family accidentally bumps into Chang Bai, the second son of the family. They have an initially heated exchange because Chang Bai is understandably annoyed that this boy came from nowhere to humiliate his family, but becomes acquainted after the boy swears. That he will never toss arrows and gamble again. Fortunately, the drama of the gamble comes to an end. But through this conversation, the boy said it was this Yuan brother that told him to make this bet. Therefore, it was the Yuan older brother who came here to try to humiliate the Sheng family. This is a rather despicable thing to do, and we get a glimpse of what type of family Hualan will be marrying into. Not too good, if I must say so myself. While the family was able to save face thanks to Minglan, it does not mean the family is not going to punish Changfeng or the third son for almost humiliating them. We end the episode with Wang Danyangzi angrily storming over to where Changfeng is. He is currently being beaten by his own mother Lin Xiangyang. His father is also there. Wang Danyangzi, of course, wants to beat the kid for almost destroying her daughter's engagement party. Ning Xiangyang smartly doesn't try to ask for forgiveness. Instead, she proactively asks for severe punishment for her stupid son. This surprises Wang Danyangzi a little bit, but she's happy to hear that this kid is receiving punishment and lets the beating happen. Unbeknownst to Wang Danyangzi. This was all part of Ling Xiangyang's plan. She knows that this time her son made a huge mistake, so the only way to save him is to actually seek punishment for him. That way, Wang Danyangzi will be appeased, and Sheng Daren will also feel happy. If she had asked for forgiveness, Sheng Daren will be annoyed at her and her son, which will in turn cause them to lose favor. 
It's all about maintaining favor with the man of the household. This time, she, or Lin Xiangyang, takes a short-term losing position in order to stay in favor in the long term. You'll notice that Lin Xiangyang specifically asked for Dong Rong, one of the master's servants, to beat her son. There's a small clip, but she's already contacted him on how the beating will happen so as not to beat her son too badly. All of this is more or less for appearances so that they can kind of get over this mistake. Phew, that's it for the episode recap. I do want to highlight Hualan here. I actually forgot about her for a bit when I watched this drama the first time and was pretty confused as to who she was re-watching this here. She is shown to be quite prudent and caring. While the bed was happening, she actually came up with the idea that as long as her mother and father remain on the same page and behave as one unit, no matter what happened, the Sheng family won't lose face. Both her family and the Yuan family will lose face instead. But if her father and mother start fighting against each other, then only her family will lose face. This tells us that Hualan is an intelligent woman and knows how to solve these types of family squabbles. We also find out that she's gifted Milan's mother with a warm cape at the beginning of the winter. She, the eldest daughter of the family, and the daughter of the wife with a strong family backing, marrying into nobility, does not need to do this for a concubine, but she did. This shows us that Hualan is very kind to her family regardless of the family status. We also met Grandma Sheng very briefly. She plays an important role in Minglan's life, so we'll talk about her a lot more in the next episodes. That was a lot to take in. Now, we'll talk about some of the history and interesting pieces of culture that were presented in this episode. topic is Yangzhou. In this episode, we are currently in Yangzhou, which is in modern-day Jiangsu province, not too far from Nanjing. It is a historically significant city known for great merchant families, poets, artists, and scholars. The city itself is constantly referenced in novels, poems, and history. There's also a fried rice named after it. Due to its location at the northern bank of Changjiang or the Yangtze River, the city became prosperous from commerce. During the Song Dynasty, trade flourished in the city. In 1126, Yangzhou actually briefly became the capital of the Song Dynasty after the Jurchens invaded and captured the capital city of Kaifeng. Moving on. The main action of the episode revolves around the wedding gift exchange, or na zheng. This is the fourth step of six in accordance to historical Chinese wedding traditions. The six steps are na cai, wen ming, na ji, na zheng, qing qi, and qing ying. 
The first step is the proposal, or nātai. The man's parents request the matchmaker to propose marriage with the woman's parents. Before this, of course, the matchmaker would discuss potential matches with both the man's and woman's families. Once the woman's parents agree to the proposal, then we move to the next step, which is the request of the name and birth date, wenming. The man's family would ask the matchmaker to obtain the woman's name and birth date, which we then move to divining results and preparing betrothal gifts, which is nazi. The matchmaker would then match the name and birth date information between the man and woman to see if it is an auspicious match. The name and dates include the eight characters of year, month, day, and hour of birth, which would be used to divine the fate of the marriage. If the pairing is deemed auspicious, the man's family prepares for the betrothal gifts or bride price, which is the pingli that is so prominently featured in this episode. Then we move to the fourth step, which is featured here in this episode of Na Zheng. The now groom's family will send the betrothal gift to the bride's family. There is to be a banquet for the ceremony, and the groom's family will send a list that details the contents of the betrothal gift. Originally, the contents included furs, pelts, and silks. Over the centuries, precious metals and jewels were added to the list. The betrothal gift, of course, is determined based on the status of the woman's family and, to a certain extent, the man's family. There is a delicate balance in how much should be put into this gift. If it's too little, it would be insulting to the bride's family, and the bride's family might not allow the groom's party to continue with the ceremony. Which might have happened in this drama, as we saw, because both Madame Wang and Master Sheng had to agree to let the wedding party uh, arrive. The fifth step is qi or arranging the wedding. The groom's family would select an auspicious day for the wedding ceremony and bring gifts to inform the bride's family of the date. The Chinese were extremely superstitious, so it was important to avoid any unlucky day for weddings. Finally, we have the wedding ceremony, or qingying. The groom would arrive at the bride's home with a wedding procession to bring the bride home to his household and conduct the actual wedding ceremonies. Note, throughout this entire time, the bride and groom do not need to meet. Marriage was between two families, and as we just described, the traditions revolved around the two families, not necessarily the two individuals involved. So it was often that the first time the bride and groom meet actually is on their wedding night. That is absolutely crazy, if you think about it. Kind of glad we have what we have now <laughs> in modern society. In the drama, the two geese are prominently featured. A pair of geese has long been used as a symbol of marriage in Chinese traditions, dating back for more than two millennia, and were written down in various scripts such as Li Yi, the Book of Etiquette and Ceremony, written during the Warring States period. Why geese, or Da Yan? Well, there's several reasons. All basically to put a female in her place. 
First, geese will fly according to the seasons without fail. It represents when it comes to marriage, there cannot be any delay. The second, geese fly towards warmth. They will fly south during the winter and north during the summer, from cold to warm. In Chinese tradition, female always represents yin or cold, and male represents yang or warm. The flight pattern of the geese represents the yin always flying towards the yang. In a marriage, the wife will follow her husband wherever he goes. Third, when geese fly, they always fly in formation, representing structure and order. When a woman marries into her husband's home, she must follow the strict social structures and maintain that order. Lastly, geese mate for life with only one partner. When one in the pair passes, the other will not mate again. A pair of geese represents faithfulness. As for wedding traditions, this is to wish the newlywed couple a life of prosperity and happiness till death do they part. Again, this only really applies to women because as we see in the drama, the man can do whatever he wants and men in this society have lots of concubines. Well, to be fair, a man can only have one wife. He can have concubines or qie, but they still will never receive the same ceremonies as the wife. So I guess this whole geese thing still kind of does work. Very skeptical. Interestingly enough, geese are featured in five steps of the Chinese wedding tradition. Na zheng, which is what we see here in the drama, is the only one that is not. In Ming Shi, or the history of Ming Dynasty, which is the dynasty after the Song Dynasty, which is where the story is set right now, the geese are explicitly stated as not being needed for the step of the wedding tradition of Na Zheng. For example, the fifth step of Qing Qi, or setting the wedding date, explicitly requires live geese because when the groom's family brings the geese to the bride's family, it represents that the dates have been set and the geese must return at the arranged date. Just as the geese will return for their normal journeys in the wild. In the drama, we also get a shot of two golden bowls containing two live goldfish in each bowl. This is also customary at the time to send as an auspicious gift. Fish, or yu, is a homonym for idioms such as fu gui you yu, which means bountiful in wealth and fortune. So, fish is sent for good fortune and luck. Props to the drama for showing this in that one shot. Next, let's discuss tohu, or pitch pot, or arrow toss, which is an old game dating back to the Warring States period. During the Warring States period, it was customary for the host of a ceremony or party to invite guests to archery competitions. It was rude for the guests to refuse and seen as an insult to the host. During this time, all male guests were expected to know archery. It was embarrassing if one did not. Over the years, though, guests indeed started not knowing archery, and tossing arrows into pots replaced the traditional archery games. 
Before the Eastern Han Dynasty, Tohu was primarily played as a ceremonial rite. After the Eastern Han Dynasty, Tohu was played more and more for entertainment. The Song Dynasty scholar Sima Guang actually scoffed at the entertainment transformation of Tohu. The whole point was about building character and building morale. And now it's just a game. Historical paintings of the Tohu are exactly like what is shown in the show for this time period. The two ears on the side of the pot, where Gu Tingye or the the boy in blue tosses both of his arrows in, were added during the Jin Dynasty. Lastly, let's clarify here uh, what the title of Bo means. Bo is the equivalent of an earl. It is a titled position and means that the family is a member of the aristocracy. Not the highest, but still quite good. And this means that Hualan, whose father is merely a magistrate, is marrying into nobility. For this drama, we will be introduced to many uh, different members of nobility and the imperial court. So we will try to match these titles to the British nobility so that it'll be easier to translate into English. In the YouTube translation, the Yuan family is referred to as a duke. That is not the case. They are merely uh, the rank of an earl. Next up, I'll talk about some book differences in this first episode. Right off the bat, there are some significant differences that we see. Hualan's wedding does not happen for a few years in the book, and we are introduced to her as a loving elder sister to Minglan. In the book, Hualan is only a few years older than Minglan, so she's around in the book for much longer. The whole pitch pot fiasco does not happen in the book, and the older brother of the Yuan family here isn't an asshole during the ceremony. We'll find out who the young boy is who competes with Changfeng, but in the book, Minglan does not meet him for a long while. Also, as I mentioned in the intro to the drama episode, they completely disposed of the whole main character reincarnating into Minglan's body as like a modern day woman. Minglan right now is 100% from the Song Dynasty. The drama smartly dispenses with that trope. And honestly, it would not have passed through censors in China as well. Moving forward, I won't even refer to that uh, aspect of the book anymore. For this drama and this episode, I do like the introduction of many characters here. We know immediately who is the madam of the house, who are the mistresses, and how differently servants, children, and women are treated in the house based on favor from the master of the home. Well, that's it for the first episode discussion of the story of Minglan, Zhifo, Zhifo, Ying, Shi, Lu, Fei, Hong, Shou. Certainly a lot going on and many characters already introduced to us, but also many very interesting aspects of Chinese history that were presented. The music you heard in this episode is the Chinese Zheng or Gu Zheng version of the main theme of the show. The sheet music is written by Yu Mian Xiao Yan Ran and played by yours truly.
If you have any questions or comments on the show or what was represented in today's episode, please contact us and let us know. Thank you all so much for listening. We will catch you in the next episode.